And this morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, how many of you have seen the, the film Grizzly Man? Have you heard of this? Okay. Uh, it's a 2005 documentary, for those of you who haven't uh, heard of it, by Werner Herzog about a man named Timothy Treadwall who for 13 years, spent 13 years in Alaska at, at Katmai National Park living with grizzly bears. Okay, you heard me right. He moved in with the grizzly bears in the national park. And so for 13 summers in a row, he would go and he would set up camp next to the river that they would come down and they'd eat at and they'd drink at. And over this time, he, he really felt like he got to know them. I mean, he had named all of the bears. He considered them his friends. He felt like the bears had accepted him into their world, into their group. Um, he has over 100 hours of footage of himself out here in the park living with grizzly bears. In fact, he got so familiar with them, he'd even go up to them and approach them and pet them on occasion, okay? In 2003, he'd been living in that same valley again. He'd back, he was back for his 13th summer. And, um, and uh, it was a drier year. The bears were undernourished. Um, and uh, it was getting harder and harder to find food. And this summer, he actually stayed later than he ever had, all the way into the early weeks of October. And so this year, um, the tragic but sort of inevitable thing happened. Um, The bears killed him. The bears killed him and his girlfriend that summer um, because they were looking for food and they were hungry. And uh, so the one, they had thought, they killed the one um, who they thought had come to protect them, and the one they thought 
that had accepted them into their lives, uh, the bears came and they, and they killed them. Now, okay, it's a great movie to start with, um, and I'd, I'd recommend checking it out, but it's also a total head-scratcher. Like, this, is, this guy is way out there. I mean, like, who goes to live with grizzly bears? Does he understand what he was doing? He wanted to move in and make his home with grizzly bears. He wanted to cozy up with creatures that he had no business living with. He wanted them to be his friends. And even if it wasn't friends exactly, he certainly thought that he could manage a relationship with a wild animal that he had no business having a relationship with, right? He thought he could coexist with something that he was never meant to coexist with. Um, I think that grizzly man, of all things, serves as an excellent commentary on the passage that we just heard read, okay? And here's why. You may not have noticed it at first, but this passage is actually about people trying to coexist with something very dangerous that they have no business trying to coexist with, but they think is very manageable and very normal and even um, a welcome addition to their lives. Jerry Bridges is a Christian author, and he wrote a book a few years back called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. Okay? And, and this book, the goal of his book is to highlight the sins that Christians today have grown very comfortable with, right? the ones that we are coexisting with very nicely. Um, these aren't the glaring, extreme, icky kinds of sins. These are not the sins that are going to land us in jail, right, or are going to be socially awkward when they, and shame us when they come to light. These are the sins that all of us are living with every day. They're things like impatience or a spirit of busyness or anxiety or a lack of gratefulness or gossip or complaining. You know, the kinds of things that aren't going to embarrass you, but the ones that have become really easy to coexist with um, because they don't tend to cause too much trouble, right? Um, They're not really that dangerous, or are they? It turns out that in our passage this morning, all of the sins that sent Jesus to his death on the cross were very respectable, normal, everyday, benign sins. We're going to look at a couple characters here who, given the direct choice to believe and follow Jesus or reject him, they all rejected him. And they did this because of sins that were so common, so, so cozy, that they had become so ingrained in their life that they didn't even understand the power that they had over them and the real danger, the spiritual danger that they were living in. Now, as we're reading this passage in 2018 in America, 2,000 years after this happened, um, looking in from the outside, this seems crazy. Okay, they, These folks met God himself in the flesh. He was standing in front of them. I mean, this is the very source of life and hope in the universe. This is the creator of the world and and the one who made everything beautiful, everything beautiful that you have ever experienced in your entire life. He dreamed it up, he invented it, he created it, and he gave it as a gift to you. He was the only human to ever live a perfect life, a man who was so full of love that every thought, action, and intention he ever had was always for the best of the person that he was interacting with at the time. Jesus himself was standing before them in the flesh, and they rejected him, each of these folks. Each chose the comfort of their own sin 
instead of Jesus. From the outside, it's, it's crazy. It's unbelievable. But I think the Bible is actually asking us not to be outsiders on this one, but insiders. And to start to see ourselves in this story. So as we come through the passage and we look at two people with two very respectable sins, I want us to be asking ourselves this. Um, where am I in this uh, Where am I, who am I in this scene? And then begin to ask ourselves these questions too. Maybe what sins have I grown comfortable with in my own life? What are my respectable sins? The ones I'm tolerating, maybe even cultivating and nourishing a relationship with, something I'm trying to coexist with that I was never really meant to coexist with as I walked through this world. Something that might be far more dangerous than I even know. All right, here's the scene. That's our assignment. All right, here's the scene. Uh, The Sanhedrin. We looked at this last week. The Sanhedrin is the top Jewish court in Israel. They had just arrested Jesus, had a kind of a sham trial, a kangaroo court. They had sentenced him to death. But of course, um, they are not a, uh, a court or an agency that can actually kill people. They can't execute anyone. Only the Roman government can do that. So after they declare Jesus guilty of blasphemy, they have to take him to the Roman court. And so we read in verse 1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. All right, who's Pontius Pilate? We say his name all the time in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Who was this guy? He was the governor of this region of the Roman Empire. He was the governor of Palestine. We're going to learn more about him in a few minutes. But for now, the main thing to know is that his word was law. Okay, what he said in this region happened. And so he is holding Jesus' life in his hands in this moment. And he interviews Jesus. Verse 2, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, You've said so. Now, what Jesus means by that is basically, you got the words right, but you have no idea what you're really talking about here. Okay, You have no idea what it is you mean when you say that I'm the king of the Jews. Yes, that's true, but you don't know what you're talking about. And interesting, um, those are the last words in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says to another human being. On the cross, he'll, he'll pray to his Father in heaven, but these words are the final words that he says to another human And it's sort of indicative of his relationship that he's had with humanity his whole time. It's the idea that you don't quite understand yet what I'm all about. And you're not going to understand yet who I am and what I'm all about until I've been killed, until I've been raised from the dead, until I've ascended into heaven. Um, That is my identity. And you can't know me unless you know that. More on that in a little bit, too. Verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate, it says, was amazed. Now, Pilate's no dummy. He is a, he's a pretty competent governor, a pretty competent ruler. He actually held this post for the Roman governor longer than any of the other governors who, um, who ruled over Palestine during the Roman Empire. There were 14 of them. He held the post for 11 years. It was the longest of anyone. So he knows more or less what he's doing. He's not a dummy. And he can see two things immediately in this trial. Two things. First, Jesus is totally innocent. 
Okay, the, there is no reason whatsoever we should put this guy to death. Um, and the second thing he knows right off the bat is the only reason he's here on trial at all for his life is because of the very respectable sins of these religious leaders who have brought him to this point. Look at verse 10. Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. The high priests were envious of Jesus. And when their chance came to to really hear him and to know him and to have a relationship with him and follow him and believe his promises, they, they couldn't receive the gifts that Jesus was offering them. They couldn't receive them because their hearts were filled with envy. Envy is one of those respectable sins, isn't it? Um, you, can, uh, you can get your nails done. I had to Google this last night. But apparently you can get your nails done at Envy Spa. Okay, they're around. I didn't know that till last night. I Googled it. You can also buy a scooter, you know, one of those kid like Razor scooters. Um, you can buy an Envy scooter, okay? This is a quaint sin. This is a cute sin. This is one of those sins that we can kind of wink at and smile about, envy. And yet, this is the very sin that kept the high priests from knowing and trusting and following Jesus. This is a dangerous, deadly sin. What's envy? Envy is the sin of comparison. Envy is the sin that is uh, perfectly happy with your salary and your lifestyle until you hear what your colleague at work makes and then the vacation that they got to go on last year, and then you feel disrespected. You see, envy is not about being discontent with anything in our life, objectively speaking. Life could be good overall. It's being discontent in comparison with other people. There have actually been studies. Um, there was a, a researcher who noticed during the Olympics that um, the, the bronze medalist on the podium tended to look happier than the silver medalist. And so she ended up doing some research and found this is true. This is, this is verifiably true that silver medalists are more discontent than bronze medalists. Now, objectively, that makes no sense, right? The silver medalists beat the bronze medalists. They were better, faster, stronger, could throw farther, all of that. They won, but they also lost, didn't they? And they were actually much closer in comparison to the gold medalists. So it turns out this, the bronze medalists, they're just happy to be there, right? They're on the podium. Life's good. They're just happy to be there. It's the silver medalists in comparison to the one they're standing next to that feels like they should have gotten more. They deserved more. And right there is the thing about envy. What is it exactly that we think we deserve in life. See, the chief priests, they saw the crowds that followed Jesus. They saw his wisdom, his teaching, his preaching. They saw firsthand his power and his miracles and how effortlessly he brought religious or spiritual strength to the world. And in the presence of that greatness, did they think that they deserved some of that too? Or were they just happy to be there? Were they just happy to be there to witness the greatness of this man? You see, their envy blinded them from the gifts that were right in front of them. And if we peel the layer back just, just one more on this particular respectable sin, 
we see where it really lies at the heart of envy, and we see why this is really so dangerous and even deadly to our souls. If we feel like we deserve more than we have, who are we really accusing of not giving us what we deserve? When we cultivate envy in our hearts and nurture a relationship with it, and we, when we get used to it living there, when, we, when comparison becomes the grid through which we experience our lives, eventually we're going to go to grow to doubt and even despise God's wisdom and his goodness and his justice in the world. Because at the end of the day, it's God who has given us all things, all things. And envy at the end of the day is a sin that accuses God of not giving us what we think we deserve. All right, next movie reference for the morning. Anybody off the top of your head know the best picture from 1984? Hmm? Come on, film snobs out there. No? Uh, it was a film called Amadeus. Um, and it's about the story of Wolfgang, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who, as we know, was an incredibly gifted musician. And it turns out, um, at least in this movie, he's portrayed this way, and it probably is true, that he's also an incredible, an incredible jerk of a person. All right? Mozart's foil in the film was a character named Antonio Salieri, and he was disciplined... He was hardworking, he was extremely competent as a musician, but nowhere near the musical genius that Mozart was. And he was constantly comparing himself to Mozart, and eventually it drove him crazy. So Salieri is sick of the injustice of it all, and in one key scene, he prays to God. And this is his prayer. As he sits in a room looking at a crucifix, he says this. From now on, he says to God, we're enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for reward only the ability to recognize his greatness, his incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it, I will hinder and harm your creature as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. That's the end of envy, okay? That's where a a, a life of comparison ends up. It damages our relationship with other people through comparison, and it damages our relationship with God through thinking that we are not given the things that we deserve. Envy is not quaint or respectable or something to wink at. It's dangerous, and it's worth asking this morning, In what ways might you and I be cultivating a relationship with this particular respectable sin? A creature we are never meant to live with, that we have no business coexisting with. But are we trying? Are we trying? Here's the thing. Pilate saw through all of this. Okay, he, he saw straight into the heart of the, of the high priest, and, and he saw that um, it was their envy that was driving them. He knew Jesus was innocent, and he had the opportunity in his hands to let him go. So why didn't Pilate do it? I mean, why did Pilate reject Jesus? We know why the chief priest did. What about Pilate? It's actually another very respectable sin that drove Pilate to this decision, and it is the sin of people-pleasing. Pilate, as we said above, was the Roman governor over this region, but it was no easy job, okay? So Rome, headquarters, is thousands of miles away, at least hundreds. I don't know my geography over there very well. 
it was a far way away, okay? It took a long time for horses to deliver letters over ships and all that. Um, so Rome pretty much just wants two things out of this region that Pilate is governing. It wants peace and order, okay? And it wants their taxes. It wants the, the stream of resources that it gets from all these different areas that it's taken over. And so basically no news from Jerusalem to Rome is good news for Pilate. But here's the problem. Uh, Jerusalem and this whole region is just filled with news, okay? Pilate, it turns out, is stubborn and, um, and, um, and stern and inflexible ruler, but so were the Israelites, okay? So this is just two hard heads knocking all the time. And there were regular flare-ups. There were regular um, insurrections and protests and all of this stuff. And so professionally, his goal here is pretty much to just keep the peace as much as he can by keeping the people happy and therefore keeping Rome happy as well. And then Jesus enters his court one Friday morning. He can tell he's innocent. But he can also tell something is brewing here that is going to go very badly if it blows up and it might end his career, okay? So he's got a problem on his hands. And he tries to wiggle out of it in a whole bunch of different ways. He tries to send Jesus to Herod. That doesn't work. He tries to him instead of kill him. That doesn't work. Um, but eventually, um, verse 15 tells us exactly why Pilate made the choice he did. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate begins this whole encounter by seeking amnesty for Christ. He really is trying to get him off. He really is trying to help him. But by the end, he's only seeking amnesty for himself. He's just trying to please enough people so he can stay safe and stay in control and keep, keep his power for a little bit longer. Um, it was his people-pleasing that caused him to reject Jesus. Now, it's important, uh, we've got to be careful here, because as we begin to apply this to ourselves as well, we've got to ask, I mean, is wanting to please other people all that bad? I mean, kids wanting to please their parents, that's a good thing, right? Husbands and wives wanting to love and serve the other person and, and, um, and display love to them. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, employees wanting to, to please their employers by the, the good work they do. That's, that's a good thing. So when exactly do these good things become so dangerous to our souls? When does sin turn into, or when does a good thing, sorry, turn into something that's dangerous yet respectable sin? The answer is this. When our people-pleasing is not about the people that we're trying to please, but it becomes about us, that's when we have made the turn, and this becomes dangerous to our own souls. Here's another way to say it. When our identity as a person is so wrapped up in what other people think of us, whether that other person is Caesar himself, okay, or just your normal boss, or your family, or your spouse, or your colleagues at work, or friends at school, when our value as a person is linked directly with what other people think of us, and for them to be displeased with us means that we're worth less as a person, then we have turned a good thing into an idol. We've begun to worship the opinions of other people, and we've begun to need them like we're supposed to need God, like it's our source of hope or life or joy. 
Instead of relying on the promises of God himself, we're relying on the words and the affirmations of other people. And the Bible is actually really clear that as we make this trade, as we make this exchange, a good thing and turn it into a God thing, an ultimate thing, um, eventually that begins to enslave us. It begins to make us slaves to whatever we think we need more than God. We see this with Pilate. Okay, we see this right here. This was not the behavior of a free man. I mean, he was supposed to be sovereign over this whole area. His word was law, right? But here he is, and, and, and he could literally do whatever he want, but he was enslaved to the noises of an angry crowd that morning. One pastor put it this way, the free sovereign, Pilate, loses his freedom to forces that he presumably controls, whereas Jesus, who's the silent prisoner and has no control, remains true to his divinely ordained purpose and is the only one in that room who remained free that morning because his heart was not tied to an idol. Pilate's sin, as common and normal as people-pleasing is, and honestly, like, who among us isn't doing this all the time, every day, looking for the right approval from the right people in our lives? That normal, acceptable, reasonable sin enslaved him. And given the choice between the security that came with keeping people happy or Jesus, he rejected Jesus. So it's also worth asking here, in what ways might you and I be cultivating a relationship with people-pleasing? Where are we trying to coexist with this creature we were never meant to coexist with? See, as Jesus is ushered along towards his death, it's, it's no accident that there's this long series of people who have the opportunity to choose him or to reject him. And in these final hours, all of them reject him, all for different reasons. We, we looked at two this morning, but there's many more we could have looked at. Judas rejected Jesus because of his greed, the disciples because of their fear, this crowd because of worldliness. They're like, you know what? I get Barabbas. I know what he's about. He's a violent criminal trying to overthrow the government, and I understand that process. This kingdom of heaven stuff that Jesus is talking about, that's out there, right? They chose worldliness over godliness. And I think God is asking us to ask ourselves where we see ourselves here, to put ourselves in the shoes of these characters. This whole narrative, it's deeply convicting, and it's actually meant to be. That's how it was written. It's meant to to probe into our hearts and to ask us what habits, what desires are we harboring in our heart that keep us from choosing Jesus with all of our heart. What are your respectable sins? What are mine? But there is one more character in this story that we are asked to identify with. And in fact, this is the one character that you have to identify with if you're going to accept the grace of the gospel of Jesus. And ironically, it's the character that none of us identifies with first or easiest or most naturally. The chief priests, we don't like them, but we get them, okay? Who doesn't live a comparison game? Who doesn't have envy in their heart a little bit? Like, we get that, okay? Pilate, same thing. We wouldn't necessarily want to model our lives after him, but at least he was successful, right? And who doesn't understand trying to please people and and searching for the opinions and approvals of others? These guys had respectable sins. Barabbas, on the other hand, had no respectable sins, okay? This guy, verse 6, at the feast... 
Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was essentially a terrorist fighting against the Roman state who was convicted of murder. Okay, these are not respectable sins. These are the sort of sins that land you in jail. Okay, these are the sort of sins that shame you in front of your family and your friends. Barabbas, but here's the thing. On this day, in this scene, Barabbas didn't get what his sins deserved because another person took his place and took the punishment that was his so that he could walk away with the freedom that he didn't earn. Picking up in verse 8. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. We saw that. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate said to them, Well, what should I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried, Crucify him. Pilate said, What evil has he done? He's still trying to get him off the hook. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, exchanged Jesus' Jesus's place with him, had him scourged, and delivered him to be crucified. This is a picture of the grace that defines Christianity. If you want to know what Christianity is about, if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, this is it. The exchange of Jesus' life for yours You get the benefits of his perfect life, and he takes the punishment of your imperfect one. John Stott, uh, a British pastor who, who died just a few years back, put it really well in his book, The Cross of Christ. Listen to this. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. See, the concept of substitution, he writes, may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Respectable and unrespectable sins alike are all attempts to replace God with something else, but salvation, forgiveness, the hope and grace of the gospel is when Jesus substitutes himself on our behalf. This is exactly what he did for Barabbas that day. He literally took his place And if Jesus can do that for the murderer, terrorist, insurrectionist, unrespectable sin guy, if Jesus can take his place and forgive him, well, there is hope for all of us, isn't there? There is hope for anyone in this room, respectable or unrespectable sins alike. There is nothing, no sin, no habit, nothing that can keep us from the love and forgiveness that Jesus offers. This is the unique offer of Christianity. It's the choice every single person that Jesus uh, that met Jesus on the way to his cross had. Everyone who encountered him had to make this choice and honestly, the choice never changes. Okay, the choice is still ours to make today. Will you choose the comfort and the perceived control and, and the default mode of the human heart? This respectable sins we're all living with every day, or will you choose Jesus and the life and the freedom and the joy and the forgiveness and the grace that comes on the other side of his substitutionary death for you? See, here's the thing. We know so much more now 
than those who encountered him before his death. They didn't know how this was going to turn out. We know Jesus died and he raised again and he reigns in power. And this for us, this choice for us should be a no-brainer. This is a no-brainer, okay? Choose the Jesus path, right? Take that one, not the respectable sin path. And yet, every day, we're called to make that choice again, to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And Jesus continues to graciously knock at the door of our heart. So if you've been a Christian for a really long time, and like me, you feel like you were born a Christian, you don't remember a day where you don't believe in Jesus, this is another chance for us to say yes to Jesus, to choose him and the gifts of his gospel. And if you're here investigating it, and this is at all intriguing or compelling for you, I would urge you, I would urge you to keep pressing. Choose Jesus. Okay, if you want to come and talk to me, I would love to have that conversation with you about what it looks like to choose Jesus in your life. Um, That's what we got. Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf so that he will pour out the gifts of heaven for his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that um, this was your plan for sinners like us, that while we were yet sinners, not before we got ourselves cleaned up, not before we showed a little bit of promise, not um, you know after we, we got a few things in order, but while we were yet sinners, you died for us and you invite us into the health and the life and the joy of your family. I pray that you would help all of our hearts say yes to that offer, to choose it again today for the first time or for the, for the thousandth. Help us say yes to Jesus. Amen.